This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. The following content may contain strong language. Hello, this is the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. The plays of David Hare have dramatised and counterpointed the political and moral landscape of Britain and its position in our world for nearly 50 years. As a young Cambridge graduate towards the end of the 60s, he practically stumbled into playwriting while director of the touring theatre company Portable, when a commissioned writer failed to deliver a script. And so, with four days to go until the start of rehearsals, Hare himself wrote his first play, How Brophy Made Good as he calls it, a one-act satire on the absurdity of left-wing self-regard. He may be slightly scathing about his debut now, but it led to his first commission play, Slag, and from then on to a career that has seen more than 25 plays produced all over the world. He's won Olivier and Tony Awards alike, been nominated for three Oscars for his screenplays, is a celebrated journalist, essayist and political commentator. His memoir, The Blue Touch Paper, was published last year. His versions of plays by Brecht, Lorca, Ibsen, Schnitzler and Chekhov, amongst others, have been widely lauded. This year alone has seen a celebrated production of his version of Ibsen's Master Builder at the Old Vic Theatre. His trilogy of early Chekhov plays, originally produced at Chichester, is about to be revived at the National Theatre, where his newest play, The Red Barn, an adaptation of Georges Simenon's novel La Man, will be directed by Rob Ike later in the year. He was one of the earliest literary managers of the Royal Court towards the start of the 70s and his relationship with the theatre has juxtaposed at times happily, at times with a certain attrition, with his fundamental role in the establishment of Joint Stock Theatre Company and the central role in the opening of the National Theatre Building at the South Bank and his glittering and ultimately knighted career in commercial theatre. A handful of plays at the start of the 70s including Slag and also A Knuckle and Brass Neck culminated in Teeth and Smiles, a play which saw Helen Mirren fronting a prototype punk rock band but this was to be his last play at the for some 20 years until Stephen Doldry invited him to make his stage debut as an actor in his monologue via De La Rosa. Since then, the theatre has seen him return to the stage with 2000's Mising Bed and The Vertical Hour. Of all the writers I've spoken to, he seems to most clearly personify the writer as playwright. His plays read beautifully and unveil themselves in their language as fully as in their form or their images. He is a playwright, I would suggest, fascinated by the force of the things people say to one another. He imagines and captures their utterances beautifully and in so doing has explored those curious states of Englishness. Britishness, Europeanness, and just what it bloody well is to be a human. Mm. With extraordinary grace and anger for five decades, it is a great pleasure to welcome him back to the Royal Court today. Welcome Thank you. back. Thank you very much. How are you? Very good. Um, how does it feel to be in the Royal Court? How does it feel to be back here? Well, I never quite get used to the rebuilt. Uh, you know, I was such a sort of veteran. You must remember I was 20, no, I was 21 when I became literary manager. Um, and so I was so used to the old building yeah. and the run-down nature. My, uh, as literary manager, my office was, well, it was a corridor and it was the corridor that led to the toilet. And so, you know, I did see most people in the theatre during the day since most people passed on their way to the lavatory. <laughs> what was your job as... Li- what did it involve the job as literary thousand manager? scripts a year, uh, in charge of the reading of a thousand scripts a year and advising the artistic director, who was originally Bill Gaskell, um, on the programme. And then it became advising Lindsay Anderson, Anthony Page and Bill Gaskell. The three of them ran the theatre in a triumvirate for some incredibly acrimonious but very distinguished years. You know, there were years of some fantastically famous plays. Mm. Uh, John Osborne was still writing um, Edward Bond, David Storey, Christopher Hampton... We, we had more or less a repertory of great writers who, you know, if you had one play from each of those four writers during the year, then most of your programming was done for you. You know, you, were, you, you could depend on them. 21 years old, if I was surrounded by John Osborne, Edward Bond and the like now as a 45-year-old, I'd be terrified. I mean, they, were like very, very, they were very, very scary people. Yeah. 
And as Bill Gaskell said, the, you know, Bill was um, the person who, through his presentation of Early Morning, brought about the Edward crisis, Bond's Ed, yeah. Edward Bond's yeah. play, yeah. brought about the crisis that ed led to the end of censorship in this country. Yes. So that, in other words, uh, he, he put on Early Morning and he made the Lord Chamberlain look so ridiculous that theatre censorship came to an end. And he was, you know, taken into court. He could have been imprisoned for what he did. And so there was a very strong feeling by the time I arrived just after that mm -hmm. that these people had fought a war. And like all people who have fought a war, they were both exhausted, incredibly touchy, incredibly uh, oversensitive... And they were, anyway, Anthony Page, Lindsay Anderson and Bill Gaskell were all fighting among themselves. They were all disagreeing on what the theatre should be. I think, in a way, they were still in grief for the death of George Devine. And George Devine seems to have been the only patriarchal figure who yeah. was able to keep the quarrelling factions at the court together... And as soon as Devine died, the quarrelling factions started quarrelling. That's a fascinating context for a 21-year-old to walk in. Yeah, no, I walked in a complete innocent. Yeah. And I was, you know, for a start, I was a graduate of Cambridge University, yeah. uh, which, you know, was deeply disapproved of. You know, everything that was wrong in the British theatre, from their point of view, came from Cambridge University. Because they were the, all Oxford boys. But, yeah. They were all Oxford boys. Yeah. And so the Royal Shakespeare Company, which was a Cambridge theatre, <laughs> you know, also I was a heterosexual, and there were not that many heterosexuals right. working at the Royal Court at that time. We were, we were quite... We were definitely in a minority. Uh, off stage... On stage, no. But off stage, we were very clearly in a minority. And in those days when homosexual culture was so incredibly embattled also, yeah. meaning that it was not as well accepted in society as it is now. Mm. Again, that was another thing that made my life a little bit um, tricky because I wasn't part of some common assumptions, maybe, that were made by the, the um, most people who worked at the court. Can I go back to your early... Uh, the question which I've been asking everybody and will continue to is... What is your earliest memory of going to the theatre, to any theatre? My mother uh, was a very, very highly strung and very um, nervous woman. And really the only relief she could find for her nerves was amateur acting. And she loved um, appearing in plays uh, or in stage managing as well. Mm. And because she was Scottish and we lived in Bex Hill, she advised on Scottish accents for anyone at the little toddler's drama school in Bex Hill. She advised if anybody had to adopt a Scottish accent. And she also took part in the production. So probably the first thing I saw was a Moliere play where my mother was in uh, knickerbockers, velvet knickerbockers, you know, holding the door open. <laughs> and through the door burst Julie Christie. And Julie Christie was the sort of, you know, the, the, the most glamorous person in Bexhill in the 1950s. <laughs> Julie Christie was the most glamorous person in the world in the 1960s. Well, Julie, Christie, Julie Christie is still the most glamorous <laughs> yeah, person in the world yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think mean, my archetype I, of female beauty. Mm, what, what was she doing in Bexhill? Her parents in India had dumped her there because they wanted her to get a British education. And she, so she was there for about three years and she went to the Thalia School of Drama, which was a, a, a children's drama school, which I also went to in Bexhill. And so that... And she was trained by Christine Porch, she was called, who was the local drama teacher. And so Julie was older than me, so I didn't really know her, mm. but everybody knew of her because... You only had to walk down a street in Bexhill and see this astonishing-looking woman uh, to know that she was completely different from any other human being. You went to the same drama school, as you say? Drama school meaning toddler's drama school. Right, okay. You know, that you'd go for elocution competitions yeah. and stuff like that at the age of 10 or 11. And I also did, had puppet shows. I did, um, we did unbelievably ambitious puppet shows uh, when I was about 12. Um, we did Busman's Honeymoon by Dorothy Sayers. Um, and we did The Importance of Being Earnest, which <laughs> was... What? 
with, with puppets, puppets, which was catastrophic because you try exchanging the cucumber sandwiches because <laughs> the strings just get tangled up so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> that is glorious. Yeah. I'm tremendously happy about that. What, um, did you ever act? Were you an actor before? No, it was absolutely clear to me that I was not an actor. I tried to act a little bit at um, school, and it, it <clears throat> I cannot to this day judge the effect of what I do. Um, in other words, this has always seemed to me an advantage to me as a playwright, which is I have no idea what I look like from the outside. And similarly, I cannot imagine what it is like to go to one of my plays if I'm not me, so to speak. I, I don't know what the experience of my plays is like for yeah. other people. Uh, but I simply was incapable of judging a gesture so that, you know, if I stuck my hand out, I couldn't yeah. judge whether it was looked ridiculous or looked... Uh, I have no sense of what I appear like from the outside. And whenever I've seen myself on television, I've just seemed... You know, I just look like a complete lunatic who bears no relationship to me. Yeah. So an actor has to have some sense of self-presentation, and I don't have that. I share that completely, that sense. Whenever I catch myself in the mirror, a sense yeah. of, I don't... That isn't the person who I feel myself to look like. No. And I, I, know, you say I, that's I do know actors... I've, I've known actors who felt that they were unable to express what they wanted to do, to, to show because they were not endowed with the look that they would like to have. And so they simply did not look like the, per the, the feelings that they were trying to express. Their face, their body did not give them the ability to communicate what it was they, they wished to communicate. But in my case, it's worse that I don't know what I look like from the outside. When I said that uh, of all the people I've interviewed so far, you're the most archetypal kind of writer, playwright as writer or writer as playwright, I think what I mean is it strikes me that you're somebody who wrote and stumbled upon theatre as the medium that happily articulated what you want to say. Is that fair? Or no, because that... I started as a theatre director. Right. But, you, you know, yeah. I was a director before I was a writer. Before you wrote anything. But you must remember that the Royal Court training, and although I, you know, in many ways kicked against the Royal Court and yeah. was not happy here, um, nevertheless, the Royal Court training was that the writer was a genius. Right. The, the, the genius of the British theatre was in the writing. George Devine founded it because there weren't any modern writers. There were a lot of boring old poets, you know, T.S. Eliot, yeah. people who, who made up the British theatre. Yeah. Um, and there were, you know, Coward and Ratigan and Priestley and all those people mm. left over from before the war. But, you know, Devine wanted to put the writer at the centre of the British theatre. And so to us, you know, when a writer wrote a play, we didn't workshop it, yeah. we didn't read it. Yes. We either put it on as the writer had written it or we didn't put it on. And so this created incredibly powerful feelings of resentment among writers who were excluded. They were furious. Yeah. Every writer had a Royal Court radar. Every single playwright in England would say, the Royal Court loves me or the Royal Court hates me. Huh. You couldn't be a playwright without feeling what the attitude of the Royal Court to you was. And so, but that was because the Royal Court was a writer's theatre in the sense of trusting that the writer represented genius and that you must put on the individual writer's work, not mediate it through constant discussion. So when you were literary manager here, after you graduated from Cambridge, yeah. you hadn't started writing when you were working no. in this office. You were directing, though. Were you directing? I was directing. Yeah. And while I was travelling around in Portable Theatre, Tony Beaker, who, runs, who ran Portable Theatre with me, claims that I used to throw scripts from this pile of a thousand and say, I can do better than this, anyone can do better than this, <laughs> and that that's what first motivated me to write. But that's not how I remember it. Tell us a little bit about Portable. just to Portable Theatre was just that sort of, you know, permanently, you know, now much copied ideal, which was that we would slap plays down in any places, however unsuitable, mm. outside London, you know, onto prison in prisons on army camps on canteen floors in people's houses anywhere where there wasn't any theatrical institution and that we would take short sharp angry 
or very highbrow plays and put them down in front of audiences who were not used to going to the theatre and that that was the way that we would um, establish an urgency which um, more cultivated theatre-goers um, tend to lack. How were you received? Oh, incredibly badly. I mean, I mean, beyond, I mean, badly beyond belief. I mean, there were some really ugly nights. I mean, there were some shocking nights. I mean, Tony Beaker was recollecting to me a night in Hull, you know, where somebody had been trying to start a sort of Hull People's Theatre or something in mm. the 1960s. And after we performed one of our plays, he said, thank you very much, you've just destroyed the audience that I've built up over the last three years. <laughs> So we were going everywhere and pissing people off. But you must remember that pissing people off was a political project. That, you know, we thought we were doing it for revolutionary and political reasons. In other words, we were trying to awaken people yeah. to what we believed was the irrevocable crisis of capitalism, which would lead to its demise. And so if they were a little bit pissed off, what did it matter? <laughs> and uh, it's, it's fascinating just reading... Uh, in a blue touch paper this morning, just returning to some uh, extracts from that, your take on that play, which you stumbled into writing with the four days to go. I'm nervous that I mispronounced the title. How Brophy Made Good. I, I didn't, I pronounced it all right. Yeah. How Brophy Made Good, I pronounced well. Um, and that phrase, an absurdity, uh, uh, a sat on the absurdity of left wing self regard, seems to come out of the experience of patronizing those people. Is that fair? Correct me again, because it's good when you correct me. Or um, no, I was a I was a satirist. Yeah, were you satirizing the work you, that your company was doing? Were you satirizing? No, I think we were satirizing fashionable London leftism. Right, we, okay. we thought we were real. We yeah. were out on the road, yeah. and we were meeting pe the people, which we were. Yeah. And um, so we, what you know, what what I was satirizing, you know, I like a lot of people of who are adolescent students yeah. spent my entire life joking. You know, in other words, all I did at university or immediately after university was joke about how ridiculous people were. That's it. That's what you do when you're young. You laugh. You put on funny voices. Yeah. You know, you you know, do goon humour or whatever. Yeah. And so what I arrived as a playwright as a maker of jokes. And uh, that was, you know, uh, you know, as I, I quote in the book, my first agent, Clive Goodwin, who had been yeah. the editor of Black Dwarf, which was an extremely influential revolutionary newspaper. And Clive said, at last on the left, someone with a sense of humour. And this is wonderful. And so I was both greeted and resented on the left because um, I was making jokes. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be a 22, 23-year-old literary manager at the Royal Court Theatre, surrounded by the kind of men you describe in Page and Gaskell, stumbling into writing how uh, Brophy made good, but then getting a commission, which was originally a commercial commission for the Michael Codron, yeah, yeah, who was the most sort of influential commercial manager of the time. With the play which became Slag. Slag. And I Did didn't, you hide it from the Yeah, <laughs> I just didn't tell. I didn't, right, tell Bill, I, I didn't tell Bill I'd written it. Uh, because it was a feminist comedy and, you know, I don't think either feminism or comedy are things that were associated with the Royal Court Theatre of that time. You know, it was all bloke. And still not, it's still not a comedy. No, it's, very it's not a comic, comedy, a comic Whenever film. the Royal Court has tried to... Do, there are exceptions, mm. but by and large, when the Royal Court has tried to do comedy, it has been catastrophic. <laughs> I mean, they tried early to do Look After Lulu by Noel Coward just to try and get people in. Right. But people sort of don't want to come and see comedy at the Royal Court Theatre. They sort of, they resist the idea of, it, of that. Yeah. And for me as a comic writer, the Royal Court was not somewhere that I would ever consider to put my own plays on. Nor was I going to walk into the sort of, um, you know, the be shot at by all these people who I knew were incredibly rough and dismissive, <laughs> as indeed I was myself, scornful yeah. of most writing. I would not put myself in the firing line. Why would I? So how did it go? Uh, how did you go from writing Slab, which was produced originally at Hampstead? At Hampstead, yeah. yeah. What was the first play here? Was it Brass? Well, then I was mistakenly made the resident dramatist here, right? which was a catastrophic... Why was it a mistake? Well, because they hated my work. Um, so maybe they made me resident dramatist because they hated my work. I don't know. Um, and so as soon as I wrote them a play, they didn't want to do it. 
So this became a regular problem with resident dramatists. Did they the tell you that they hated your work? Did they, were they in... Well, Lindsay Anderson certainly never made any pretense to like, <laughs> to like my work. <laughs> and Bill didn't like that particular play, The Great Exhibition, it was called. Yeah, that's right. And it was a satire. And yeah. so I said, look, my position's impossible. I can't stay on as resident dramatist if you won't do my work. Yeah. So I went off and did that at Hampstead. Um, and I think that, you know, was good for me. In other words... The Royal Court and I were in such a quarrel because basically they didn't like any of the work of any of the playwrights I liked. Right. I liked Howard Brenton. Yeah. They loathed Howard. I liked Trevor Griffiths. They loathed Trevor. I was doing Snoo Wilson's plays. They loathed Snoo. Mm. And so, you know, there was a huge generational problem, which was we were the young guns and they didn't like our work. And principally they didn't like our work because it was overtly political. And they felt they had been through that. They felt that CND, the nuclear disarmament movement in the 50s, had, had you know, they, they felt that we were childish. And um, they, they, they just didn't respond to that kind of political writing. You did have plays produced here in the 70s. Mm -hmm. You did have plays produced here in the 70s. Uh, um, yeah, Teeth and Smiles, by then... Nick Wright was running the theatre with Bob Kidd and he wanted to try and get some accommodation between the young guns and the oldsters, you know. Yeah. And so uh, Christopher Hampton failed to deliver a play and again, Teeth and Smiles was put on at immense speed with Helen Mirren as a rock, leading a rock band and the theatre just shaking. To what this. was that like? I've got to ask Incredibly what Incredibly exciting. I mean, just <laughs> it's really great. fun. I wish I mean, I'd such, seen it. Such wonderful fun. And it was an incredibly simple idea. Mm. And I couldn't think why nobody had ever had it before, that you would have an evening with a band in real time. Yeah. And, you know, the band would perform its numbers as they performed its numbers, mm. and then mm. you'd go backstage and see what was going on in between the numbers. And it's like changing room for a rock yeah, and roll band. It was exactly yeah. that. Yeah. And it was, you know, a wonderful group of young actors, you know, people like Anthony Sher, who'd never appeared in London before, oh. and uh, the, Mick Ford and all these brilliant young actors who'd never been seen in London appeared. We got a fantastic company together and we just shook the plaster off the ceiling of the place. And it was a kind of watershed for the Royal Court. In other words, it, it's when the Royal Court came up to date, so right. to speak. With that generation that you talked about starting yeah. to have their And then they produced. started doing Howard Brenton plays and, yeah. you know, all, is it, all the rest. Is it true, uh, there's a story in uh, Ruth Little and Emily McLaughlin's book, Inside Out, The History of the Royal Court, mm. of just, this is anecdotal, but it's fun, of Keith Moon... Yeah, appear, the, the the who drummer appearing to ask Helen if he could drum in the band. No, on. it's not. That's not quite what happened. <laughs> uh, Keith Moon crashed his Rolls Royce into the side of the Royal Court, and then he walked down to greet his friend Carl Howman, and because Carl was playing a part in it, and Carl was a friend of Keith's, mm. and he walked on stage and said hello. Carl, right? Walked on stage? Yeah, he walked on stage during the performance and said, hello, Carl, right? <laughs> and then he started some drunken monologue on stage and the audience was thrilled because, they, you know, Keith Moon was on stage, so they were absolutely delighted. Mm. And then when we pulled Keith Moon off the stage and said, you know, um, he, he said, well, Carl asked me to come and see him in the play, so I came to see him in the play. <laughs> <laughs> And Helen says it's her greatest regret in life that she wasn't on stage at the moment when oh, it happened. Was she not no, on stage? That's the myth. That's the myth. <laughs> oh. She bitterly regrets she wasn't. The, um, the, your career has been so rich and so diverse and uh, there's such a range of plays that we could carry on this kind of anecdotal conversation. It would take about 17 hours to get up to the Red Barn, so I want to do something slightly different, which is to talk to you a little bit about uh, your process uh, and about the process of writing, um, uh, and to kind of look at one or two of the plays and uh, how those plays are written in a little bit more detail, if that's all right. Um, it might be that there's a process you, you, you're kind of, you, you can't remember. I mean, I cannot, can't remember what it was like writing my plays two years ago, but it'd be interesting just to kick it around and see if anything yields. Um, the, as kind of general introduction to that, what's, like, what's a working day like for David Hare? What do you do? Oh, I just go and 
sit in my... Uh, I have a place to work. Where is that? It's near the Heath in Hampstead. Is it, your, is it where you live or it's a separate place? No, separate... it's a separate place. Right. And that's because when I started writing, I could write anywhere. And then at a certain age, I found it impossible to write if I didn't have ideal conditions, meaning right. space, light, quiet, quiet above everything. Yeah. Um, and so, no, I walk to work in the morning. And then what time, I what always time write. Work, what time does your working day start? What time do you... I, well, I walk to work at eight, and then I yeah. always write at nine. And then on a good day, you roll on. Um, mm. But if it's a bad day, you'll stop at one o'clock. Um, so as not to get completely bogged down and knotted up. Mm. And uh, if I look back in my diary, it always says... No, that's not true. There are two kinds of process. One is one where it's so incredibly fast, and I used to think if it's that fast, it's always good, mm. until I wrote something that was absolute rubbish and fast. <laughs> and then, you know, or else, usually in the diary, it's struggle, 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 I don't believe this thing is ever going to work, it's never going to happen, and that is always a sign that you're actually... But, but the problem is that the feeling of, of working on something bad is completely indistinguishable from the feeling of working on something difficult. You can't tell the difference. And it may be difficult because it's genuinely interesting or it may be bad, but they, are, they bring about the identical physical symptoms, which I describe as feeling that an elephant is sitting on your chest. That's what I feel. The moment of writing feels like that. Yeah. You just go, oh, God. And particularly if you're articulate, as I am, and people think, therefore, you always know what's going on, but, you know, it, when you're on that page, you're as helpless as a child and you can't, you don't know what's wrong, you just know it's wrong. And so you just want to cry. Are there plays which you remember writing particularly vividly? Any other plays which came quickly to you? If you can talk yeah, about A Secret Rapture was written in six weeks. And uh, I think Racing Demon was written, after I'd done the research, Racing Demon was probably written in eight weeks. And that was a time when I was writing very quickly. And I had the feeling that there was an energy to a play if you wrote it that quickly, that it would have a rhythm that would be the, the rhythm of fast composition. Could you tell us a little bit about Racing Demon, about the writing, about the Racing the Demon was, was, that was to do with, Richard Eyre had become director of the National Theatre and he was very, very rude to me. I mean, I was his oldest friend, and we'd worked together a lot. Because you worked in Nottingham. When we'd he worked in Nottingham. We'd run a company together at yeah. the National Theatre. And then when he became artistic director, he said, oh, I can't just do David Hare plays, because <laughs> Peter Hall did that. And I'm not going to be, you know... And he was unbelievably rude. And um, so when I said, well, I've come up with a different way of writing a play, he said, what will that be? I said, well, I'll go and research it, but the research won't make a documentary play, it'll make a fictional play. The research was... Sorry, so the research you. was going to the Synod and going to the Synod of the Church of England. Right. And then going talking to a lot of priests in who, who were in these things called teams in London where they work no longer as individuals but in teams. And I found these people immensely attractive. They were, they were people who seemed to me to be just, you know basically doing the work that nobody else was willing to do, what the social services should be doing, mm. uh, you know, what the government should be paying people to do, but which instead was being done on a voluntary basis yeah. by priests who yeah. were no longer uh, propagating the gospel of Christ, but who were just simply trying to enact Christ's own actions, help the poor. That was their mission. Mm. So these people seemed to be noble and, in, and also slightly ridiculous, but... No, only marginally ridiculous. Mostly I was on their side. Mm. And uh, so, you know, once I had done a lot of research, I just put the research behind me and invented uh, on a fictional basis. The, which, which is distinct from the work that you'd done with Max Stafford Clark and Joint Stock in the late 70s and early 80s, where the research formed the muscle of the play, yes? Is that a no, I later fell into this awful verbatim that I right. absolutely loathe. <laughs> Do and you? I do. I really loathe it. And I came to feel that I'd gone through it and out the other side in yeah. a way that I, I, I'm sick to death of it as a form. Yeah. And um, until, 
you know, Alecky Blythe and um, London Road. Adam Cork, you know, found something new to do with it, and Rufus Norris in London Road, yeah. uh, which I really loved to bits. I thought it was fantastic. And I thought it was an answer to all the horrendous problems of verbatim, which is set the bloody thing to music. But it, it's not its not an answer that's going to last. Mm. And I, there's just something po-faced and intractable about verbatim theatre. And I speak as someone who's, you know, held to be a model of it. But I, I, I'm, I, I grew sick to death of it, I must say. Going back to Racing uh, Demon, what, the process of writing... With that play, are you a planner? Did you plan? Do you know what was happening in each scene? Or is, is writing an exploration of character and story for you? I don't know. It, it, you know, I, the thing I say about this, and I think I say it in the book, is that everybody says, oh, the characters take over. Um, but it seems to me that everything takes over. In other words, mm. the question of why somebody should be on the stage or off the stage, mm. why this is the next scene, mm. uh, why the you sense that, oh, this is the next action, it would be truer to say that every single thing takes over and feels right or doesn't feel right in exactly the same way that a painter says something feels yes. right or doesn't feel right. In other words, Francis Bacon can't explain to you why it looks better without a bit of blue here and a bit of green there. Oh, no, that works, he says. <laughs> but why does that work? You know, when it didn't work before. And similarly, if an actor paraphrases a line, I say, I'm sorry, that is not the line. Mm. The line is that. Mm. And they say to you, well, it's exactly the same. It means exactly the same. Why does it have to be the way you want it? Mm. And I say, well, it's style, and the mystery of style is precisely that. It's a mystery. But I know that it pleases me if you say my line, and it doesn't please me if you paraphrase my line. And I can't explain to you why it sounds better yeah. or more perfectly expresses what I want. I can't tell you why. I can only tell you you have to do it because you are in my painting. Mm. I am the writer, mm -hmm. and you have to be in my painting, mm. and you have to behave like a character in my style, and you can't behave in another style. Mm. And that doesn't mean the actor can't bring something incredibly creative, but they have to accept the discipline of belonging in my picture. Do you... Uh, can I go back to the question of planning? When you're writing, do you know what's happening in the story, or is the story... A discovery for you in the moment of line writing. You, well, you have moments of, uh, as you would know, you have moments of divine revelation, don't you? Where you just suddenly something is blindingly clear to you yeah. that has not been clear, and you go, "Oh, that's where the story's going." Sometimes but I mean, I, crudely, yeah. I, I, you know, crudely, any good play, anything that's going to be any good, the last half hour is going to be the most interesting. You know, right? Any play can. Yeah. Be, keep you entertained for the first half hour that's easy you know and I particularly say that because I was with portable theatre where the plays were only 45 minutes long right and 45 minutes is a way of dodging the real problems of playwriting you just slap it on and you know, you know it, it, it catches you and then it's over you know and that's easy uh, but the business of developing things through the course of an evening in a way that is actually worthwhile yeah. And obviously, I feel this 90-minute fashion at the moment is a way of, of dodging real, the real structural and architectural problems of playwriting. I've, I've, I see very few 90-minute plays where I feel that they go as deep as plays that used to be in two or three acts. Yeah. yeah. The, um... <laughs> Who are you writing for? Golly. <laughs> well, there's no knowing, is there? Do you imagine an audience when you're writing a play? No. Do you imagine a stage? No, I imagine a painting. Do I sort you? of imagine a... Uh, the visual is fantastically important to me. So I sort of imagine what it's going to look like. It's fascinating, just because a recurring thing in some of the things you're talking about is this knowledge of how something appears and an inability to know how something appears. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that your plays are painterly because you have a control over how, how that appears. I, I, it's partly anticipation. I always think that when I go into a theatre, and now that these days the curtain is always up, yeah. which, of course, it wasn't in my youth. The mm. curtain was always down. Yeah. 
But when the when you see the first image, you want it to be a place where you want to spend the next couple of hours. So that if you go in and, you know, there's a little privet hedge and there's a sort of <laughs> chain fence and, yeah. oh, you know, a front door or an office or anything, you just go, oh, my God, this is going to be boring. <laughs> Uh, whereas, you know, you walk into... The, same, what? the opening image of Plenty. Yeah, the opening image of Plenty, where there's these high windows and this woman, and she's sitting on a packing case and her husband's naked and bloody in front of her and she's rolling a cigarette. You know, I just want to see that play yeah. because I because the image is so alluring. Uh, the first image of the play gets you in and you want you want to know what that is about. And so... For me, expectation is very important in the theatre. When you say you don't know who your audience is or you don't think about your audience, pe uh, different people perceive the same image in different ways, no? Totally. So that, in other words, you know, you may find that suddenly in Japan, yeah. a play that you've written 15 years ago yeah, requires this huge significance to the Japanese that you haven't seen coming at all. Mm. Um, and so the whole delight of theatre is that it shines at a different angle according to who's looking at it when and where. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think so. I'm just thinking about my own work. Uh, and uh, Imagining an audience is important for me. So when I'm writing for the Royal Exchange in Manchester or when I'm writing for the Royal Court, it calibrates the type of play that I write because I'm writing into those spaces or those audiences. I've always felt that um, there was a difference in the way people wrote for theatre and television. And I was very aware when I was young yeah. that um, people like David Mercer, Dennis Potter as well, mm. um, John Osborne even, wrote brittle and defensive plays for the theatre. And that when they knew eight million people were going to be watching, yeah. they were not frightened to be emotional and even sentimental and to open up their feelings. Yeah. And so I must admit, for me, beginning to write for television and doing Licking Hitler and Dreams of Leaving and these things yeah. were terribly good for me. And the feeling that I've got to interest not just the theatre-goers, the, the little tiny top of society, yeah. but I'm going to play this to a broad... You know, mm. Licking Hitler was watched by 8 million people yeah. on its first right. transmission. So it's a completely different approach... And for me, it's it's an opening of your heart, maybe. Because mm. if you don't open your heart to 8 million people, you're unlikely to hold their attention. Is your working day the same now in 2016 as it was in 1996 or 1996? No, I, oh, oh, 96, yeah. So that process of going for a walk up at 8 o'clock, writing... Yeah, but I've been, you know, I've been getting up at 8 o'clock and sitting alone for 40 years. Mm. And uh, I need it. <laughs> you know, my, my family get very upset when I say that. Mm. But I can't imagine a life where I don't spend the larger part of the day alone. And I think anyone who adopts our profession and is not up for that <laughs> is choosing the wrong profession. Yeah. How are you in rehearsal? In rehearsal? Yeah. <laughs> Are you, are you conscious of You mean as a writer? You, yeah, just what, how do you enjoy rehearsal? Oh, I love the actors. Uh, and you return to actors, don't you? There's actors who've been in several of your plays who are very passionately loyal to you. Yeah. Hearing yeah, Bill and Knight. I'm loyal to them. Yeah. It's, it's a two-way thing. Yeah. Uh, I feel that working with the same actors over and over, you um, go much further. That You know, some people say, oh, it makes you lazy. I don't think it does. Mm. I think it's just the whole business you know we're we're shy i'm sh i'm very shy as a human being so i find it much much easier working with people i know when you when you're making your paintings in the early stages of writing a play do you uh, paint actors in there that you no. you don't cast so the characters are fictional in the moment of writing no you're not writing for bill nye or helen mirren or no I mean, obviously, with Bill, when once I'd done uh, the first of the three Warwicka trilogy, which yeah. was page eight, then I knew that he would be in uh, Turks and Caicos and in Salting the Battlefield. So I wrote those two for him and mm. for... And I enjoyed it very much. But, no, I don't think it's very useful to think about who's going to play the parts. 
And, you know, when I wrote Amy's View and everyone said, oh, this is a play that must have been written for Judy Dench, I said, never occurred to me once while I was writing it. Mm. What have you learned from doing uh, versions, from writing English language uh, versions? Oh, just uh, the pleasure of garage, you know, take take the car apart and put the pieces on the floor, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> it's I, sort of I, riveting. I completely get it's that. It's completely riveting. Yeah. I mean, in Ibsen, I mean, there's a fascinating thing in Ibsen, in that third act of Master Builder, okay, mm. it's a crazy play, but any other writer would give um, that Solness, the Master Builder, one big climactic scene at the end of the third act. Ibsen gives him two. And you sort mm. of go, and even in rehearsal, I was going, oh, my God, this scene where he comes back again? You know, yeah. just before he yeah. dies on the... on the. I'm, I hope I'm not spoiling the Master Builder for anyone who's never seen it, mm. but he dies by mm. falling off the steeple at the end. Um, you know, why has he done two of these big scenes? And yet, in performance, it plays gangbusters and I'm not quite sure I ever understood why it played gangbusters because by all the rules it oughtn't to work you know Ibsen was the guy who invented the obligation scene yeah. the scene you've been waiting for yeah yeah in Master Builder he gives you two scenes you've yes. been waiting for <laughs> and it's a complete defiance of the rules but it works absolutely brilliant I had that with the doll's house when I just in the writing of the third act of the yeah. doll's house I was saying this can't work it can't work you can't go from that I high know. melodrama to that yeah. high melodrama in the space of half a page I know and you put it in front of an I audience know. <laughs> it's, to, it's totally there, <laughs> it's and it's a, and and so that does teach you to be bolder. I yeah. think I think the experience of doing Ibsen is very very good for you because yeah. it teaches you to be bolder. Brecht, I can see, is just a moving beam, isn't he? It's just whatever is in front of him at the moment. So mm. he just picks up characters, Great. throws them away, and he doesn't have any. It's just the subject of the play is moving like a beam across mm. the evening, and this gives the this it makes the actors evenings not very satisfactory in other words a lot of actors are generally unhappy and break because they come on think they're going to do something called establish a character but all they're going to do is serve his narrative and be thrown off the <laughs> stage again so i think that it's not great for actors mm. but it is a wonderful focus on how to tell a story mm. you know, which is always follow the story don't follow the character mm. and so working on someone who's as pure about that was probably very good for me too one of the things which I get when I'm, I, and this is a tremendous or terrible confession, when I'm writing Chekhov or Ibsen or Brecht, there's an immortality to those writers. Like Chekhov, next week you open your, uh, the versions of the three young Chekhov plays at the National Theatre. When you're writing your plays, do you ever think, a hundred years, David, is anybody still going to be doing no. this? You never think about it. No, because it's a total lottery, isn't right. it? I mean, some of the most admired writers of my lifetime are now no longer performed. Sure. Uh, on the other hand, writers who were, you know, out of fashion are, uh, you know, hellishly popular. It mm. seems a completely arbitrary business to me. And I don't, you know, I don't understand theatrical fashion. Who does? Um, mm. And it often, I'm afraid, seems to mean more to do with what directors want to do than it does the intrinsic virtue of writers. Mm. Um, all the time that Richard was running the National Theatre and I had any say in running the National Theatre, you know, or any influence, I would say this theatre should not be run according to what it is directors at the moment happen to want to do. Yeah. It should be run according to the plays that are being put on. I think Rufus Norris, who's taken over the National, is going to have to learn this lesson. You know, I don't think that Ivo van Hove and, uh, you know, Carrie Cracknell are the arbiters of the culture. I think the culture has got to come out of the writers that it is urgent to do. Which is the royal court. Yes, and I see it that way round. Yeah. That doesn't mean any disrespect towards directors. No. But directors already have all the power. You know, they have already have all the power. So... They should at least sometimes have the humility to admit that it's their job to put on the stage some writers who've fallen from fashion. Do and you... watching writers fall from fashion has been one of the most alarming things in my lifetime. You know. Alarming in writers because it just there it. just seems no justice to it. Do you feel that uh, as a possibility with your own work? Oh yeah. The... 
and and does and that propels you to write more or no it's nothing it's nothing to do with it because you know obviously if you're a playwright you live in the school of rough knocks don't you yeah so you know you know that there are plays there are certain plays the judas kiss is the obvious example mm. the judas kiss is a play that was given a really terrible first production and was therefore in 1999 where it was completely misconceived, mm. was assumed to be one of my worst plays. It's now, it's just done 250 performances and is taken to be one of my best plays. And, you know, I would love to blame that wholly on the production, but I'm not sure I can. I, it may also just be that the tenor of the times has yeah. changed and that now it is seen to be what it was. That... Uh, and go back to that image of the the kind of like uh, it's a problematic schizophrenia, isn't it? And the image of you writing alone from nine till one or nine till two, if it's a good day or onward, and the privacy that you cherish, but the fact that necessarily we are judged by others, we are judged by others as artists. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I say to young actors when actors go into the business of you know the performing arts. Yeah. I say you think you are going in to express yourselves. But you're not going in to express yourselves. You're going in to be judged. Mm. <laughs> and if you don't fancy being judged, mm. if your temperament is not for being judged... Get some water, yeah. <coughs> Sorry, mate. You're going to be very unhappy. Sorry about the cough. No, this cough's good. It makes it sound like we're having a real conversation in a real room. <laughs> Which is very important to me in this whole aesthetic. When Emily asks to edit this, uh, edit this I'm going to insist that she keeps this bit in. <laughs> It's deconstructed podcasting. Um, to fifth, um, do you read a lot of plays or see a lot of new plays? No. Is that a conscious decision? No, it's just my head is so full with what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, you know, my best friend or one of my best friends, Jonathan Kent, just directed Long Day's Journey and Tonight mm. in New York. And I was in New York for a month and I had to ring him and say, I just... At the end of a day's writing, do not have space in my head mm. for Long Day's Journey and Tonight. I'm sorry. And that doesn't mean I don't think that Long Day's Journey isn't a great play, mm. and it isn't that I don't think your production won't be great of it. But I think that we're very bad critics, writers, yeah. meaning plays will be fascinating to me the most fascinating play I've seen in the last couple of years was The Silver Tassie by Sean O'Casey, which just to me was riveting because it had the ambition of Shakespeare. He just seemed to be trying to put the whole bloody society on stage in the most radical way. And it just, to me, was the liveliest evening I've had in the theatre in years. But I am aware that I'm not a critic and I can't tell if you're just a theatre goer whether the silver tassie would excite you in, say, the way the view from the bridge would excite you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd, for me, one was a much more exciting evening than the other, but I have to assume from the worldly success of the view from the bridge that I'm alone in feeling <laughs> this, you know? But that's because it's what I'm interested in at the moment as yeah. a writer, yeah. you know? So that's why we're terrible critics. Um, you've been, uh, on occasion in the past, critical of the generation of playwrights that have uh, worked in the Royal Court, predominantly not exclusively, uh, in the kind of years from, say, 97 to 2007. You've had reservations about some of those playwrights. No, I haven't had reservations about... No, you misunderstand what okay. I have said. Yep. All I have said is this thing about that the Royal Court seems to work best, which I know you disagree with me, <laughs> when uh, there is an artistic director saying yep. this is the voice of the generation. And, you know, that I understand the Royal Court when George Devine is sticking out for John Osborne, yeah. Bill Gaskell is sticking out for Edward Bond, Max Daffer clark is sticking out for Carol Churchill. I, the chaos of voices now yeah. and the absence of feeling that anything is very important. You know, theatre, I don't think this is old fartery. I think that we did really feel that these were great writers mm -hmm. who were addressing society at large through the theatre. Mm. And I think that sense of importance at the Royal Court has gone right. because I don't know who Vicky, who now runs the Royal Court, thinks is important. I just get no impression from the sure. programming yeah. who is meant to be the person that you have to hear from. Yeah. And that, that, that 
you know, clearly for a while at the National, it was Harold Pinter. For a while, it was me. And when Richard was running it, he was kind of saying, you have to go to the plays of David Hare or you won't, you know, know yeah. what's happening. Yeah. And that, is it the culture that, I mean, you know better than me, is it the culture that's fractured or is it just that sense of importance that's gone? I think it's, I, I mean, I, I'm more interested... Or do we not have any great mine. writers anymore? I think we do have great writers and I think great writers have continued to arrive for the last 15 years. I think Sarah Kane was a great writer. I think Joe Penhall and Jez Butterworth are great writers and uh, uh, Ender Walsh, I think, is a great Yeah, they writer. haven't stirred up the culture. Sarah maybe has by, but, you know... Through the legend of who she was, yeah. as much as through her plays herself, we can't tell what would have happened if she'd lived. Um, you know, Jess Butterworth has written an incredibly successful play, the most successful play of the 21st century is Jerusalem, but it hasn't been done in a single regional row. Now, that is peculiar. A peculiarity of theatre structures in the regional rep, or, or do you think uh, of. No, lack of resonance. Of that play. Yeah, You know, if you look at Look Back in Anger, then ten years or five years after yeah. Look Back in Anger was premiered, everyone had heard the name of that play, mm. Waiting for Godot. Everyone in the country has heard of Waiting for Godot. You know, they they know it exists. There are more um, plays but, now is one problem, isn't there? I mean, and it's, there are fewer plays produced. Than, well, I'd say, of course, we're all failing. I think we're just failing to write plays that are good enough. Angels in America... I would say was probably the last play yeah. that had that sense of oh I see the whole culture is represented here on the stage by this play and I I don't know what the last play one could say that of was since Angels in America do you think do you worry about that failure in your own work oh yeah yeah and does that inspire you or trouble you more do you inspire to get better? Do you do it right this time? I'm going to do that, or do you, does it worry you to the point you just want to stop? <laughs> I ask that because it's something very I recognise in my own. Well, I you know it's obviously a source of frustration to me that I don't feel. You know, people have always been very, uh, you know, hideously divided about me. In other words, you know, pe the people for whom my plays are important they are the most important things in the culture. So that, you know, I'm used to people making speeches to me in the street where they say this. I'm also used to being denounced, particularly in newspapers. And so this argument about my work has always been very, very lively. But do I feel I have changed the culture in the way John Osborne and Harold Pintock changed the culture? No, I don't. The... Anomaly of uh, the relationship between recording and podcasting means that this will probably be podcast sometime in the autumn. But we're talking at a time, a week, or ten days after the referendum to, for the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. If there was a time for storytellers or a time for playwrights, one might imagine it's now. How are you... you of all the playwrights I know, you're, you're the, the most successful essayist and journalist and writer of our times in your prose work how are you feeling now this week in the last fortnight are you worried are you excited are you concerned about britain i think that i've i i what i what i feel overall is that i've lived so long that i've lived through three historical experiments in other words 90, 1945 to you know, 1979, mm. is the welfare state, it's the National Health Service, it is crudely Atlee's socialist experiment, yeah. which is then superseded by something called shareholders' democracy, which is Margaret Thatcher, whose capitalist ideas are still prevalent, but I think there are technically fewer shareholders now than there were in 1980. So that's another... It's an idea that's failed and passed, although the ideology is still around. And then the third idea of Britain, once it had lost its imperial role I'm speaking of, yeah. the third idea was moral policemen. In other words, Blair's idea that we would, although we had lost power, nevertheless we would have tremendous influence mm. because we would go around the world being ambassadors for democracy. 
And that idea of Britain, you know, which Cameron also to a degree believed in, in Libya, clearly, uh, you know, that one really has gone. I, mm. I think the Chilcot Inquiry, which will be published this week, is the end of that. Now, the idea that the next phase is going to be us returning to Little England and, you know, and to the idea of plucky Little England being alone mm. and navigating the great seas all by itself, um, that that's the fourth phase, the Churchillian phase, mm. but without any Churchillian leader in sight, uh, just seems to be completely ridiculous. But you're laughing words. again like you were laughing as an undergraduate student. <laughs> well, it's just so silly, isn't it? It's not going to float. It's not going to work. Yeah. I can tell them right now. Yeah. It's doomed. So the idea of what, what Britain will now become, having tried these three different suits on in my life, I do feel it's a great turning point. In other words, you know, this is the abandonment of an experiment. Mm. Uh, all of which are post-imperial versions of this country. And, uh, you know, Dean Acheson is being quoted again about losing an empire and not finding a role. Yeah. But the role that is being offered to us by Liam Fox, by, you know, Boris Johnson, by Michael Gove, by Theresa May, mm. is just ridiculous. It's the stupidest idea of Britain that I've ever heard. And apart from anything, it appears to be going to break Britain up. And by Jeremy Corbyn? I don't think that he, you know, I I was keen on the idea of Jeremy Corbyn in the hope that we would have articulate opposition. Mm. But we've had neither articulacy nor opposition for the last year. So I, I, as, you know, I will be proved wrong by this podcast. I know, it's quite interesting what's going to be in September. <laughs> but his, his position is just impossible to hold. Yeah. Um, and the, the analysis that was in The Absence of War when, you know, which I wrote in 1993 about how does the left find um, solidarity when it no longer has a cultural experience in common that it had when it was in the industrial, um, the great industrial centres. That question that is asked in the absence of war, we seem nowhere near answering. And in fact, yesterday, somebody who said to me they'd seen the absence of war this year said it's as if you wrote it yesterday. And, and nothing in that analysis has changed. And I go back to your self-description, the way you described, uh, the way you described how Brophy made good. I want to touch on the absurdity of left-wing self-regard. Yeah. <laughs> Think about. Yeah, well, that, that's <laughs> it. You know, I've always been a lousy member of the left, and but an important member of the left because you've been alert to its failings. Yeah, um, that is very kind of you to say that. <laughs> Another way of putting it is that I'm just intrinsically disloyal <laughs> and bolshy and uh, don't. I, I don't fall easily. You know, Nick Starr, who ran the National Theatre, said, you don't offer as a rallying point. He said most left-wing playwrights offer some, correct some obvious injustice and then send the theatre, mm. everyone out of the theatre going, I'm going to correct this injustice and feeling great. And Nick Starr said, your problem, David, is you make us all feel terrible because you say this problem is really difficult and I'm not sure there's even an answer to it. And here is somebody's point of view and here is somebody else's. But that to me is what real writing is about, not rallying round the flag. I mean, I love rallying round the flag and if people can do it, and Lee Hall to me mm. is a wonderful rally round the flag writer. Mm. You know, I wish I could do what he does. Um, but I'm just not minded to do that. I do something different, which is make people feel very deeply without necessarily, you know, making them feel better. Is that what you're writing for? Are you conscious of what you're writing for as opposed to who you're writing for? Yeah, I, I want to stir people very deeply and I want them to uh, feel that they there's something... You know, the, the, the commonest reaction to Skylight is which I have heard so many times that it's like a record, people saying to me, this is what I have always felt and never been able to articulate. And so when they say that, that's obviously very gratifying because that's what I'm trying to do, mm. is, is make people alert to feelings inside themselves that they maybe either didn't know they have or they were incohate and couldn't clarify them. And I've clarified them for them. So they can say, yeah, that's what I feel. Mm. And so in, when you write a good play, you get that look of recognition. And if, when you write a bad play, people go, what the hell is he on about? 
And you're still writing with as much energy as you're writing for the I last hope so. Years. Not as yeah. much physical energy, but as much mental energy. The productions in the last two years have been extraordinary. Been, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been really trying to get a lot of work on. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I feel the whip of time on my back. Do you? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. You know, I can get ill any day. So we've got to keep going. It becomes more and more urgent. You wait. <laughs> David Heath, thank you very, very thank much you, indeed. Thank you, You wait. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, then make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or on iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed here, all of the plays discussed here, at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the bookshop. Uh, at the theatre in Sloan Square. Come to the theatre, come and see the plays. Follow us on Twitter, at Royal Court. Follow me on Twitter, at Stephen Simon. And tune in next week to next week's Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast. Uh, I'm Simon Stevens. Have a brilliant week. Thank you very much for listening. See you later. ta